everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Hey, Jeff. What is happening? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We're, we're recording this a little bit a little bit early. You've got some well-earned time off coming up. So with that in mind, we've got a little update we want to share with people. Yeah. So we are recording this early. We're recording on January 25th uh, after the market closed, but this will be the episode that drops on Jan- uh, sorry, February 4th. So, uh, but g- the good news is the topic we're talking about today is pretty timeless. So I don't think the early yeah. recording will mm-hmm. factor much. Um, but it just means there's something wanna- that we had promised to do that we're going to have to do a little bit later. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to mention. So when we launched the uh, our portfolio contest back in the beginning of the year, or as we like to call it, the Smatterfolio, yes, we, um, do. we, yes, we, we said do. we were going to do monthly updates, uh, brief monthly updates on the stocks in the portfolio. And we are going to do that. But just the timing was such that we couldn't record that in you know at the end of the month because we still have another week or so from today. So we will do that. It'll be part of the February 11th pod. So um, you know, hopefully you guys are all regular listeners and you'll stick around and check that out. Um, but we will definitely talk through the portfolio on that episode. Um, but before we dive in, I just want to once again uh, ask and request and beg and plead everyone to give us a rating on their podcast apps. If you want to be extra specially awesome, you could write a little review. Um, that really helps everyone find the pod, expands the audience, gets more people asking us great mailbag questions and all that good stuff. So we would really appreciate that. Um, yeah, so let, let's dive in, Jason. Today we're talking, we're answering a question that I know I see asked a lot um, in various places, and that is how many stocks should you own? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I, I love it because you know our tagline is you know we like to answer the important questions about investing, and I always end each episode reminding listeners that you know sure we give answers, but you need to find your own answers. This is the epitome of that of that sort of thing. So what we're yes, yes it is <laughs> you know. You know, it really is. So this is what Jeff and I thought would be a, a useful way to approach this is we'll talk about how we each invest. And we've done this before. We did a mini series on how we invest pretty early in our in our in our run that you might might be worth finding in our catalog if you're looking for for help and other insights for your your own investing journey. But what we thought we'd do instead of just talking about how we do it and what we prefer. Let's make the make the case for having a concentrated portfolio, make the case for having a large diversified portfolio, but also talk about how what's right for you today may not be what's right for you in 10 years. Right, Jeff? Yeah. And that last part is really important and we'll talk about it more, but just to tease it a little, that could depend on a bunch of things, right? It could be, it could depend on simply just age or your proximity to retirement, but it also could change based on your interest in researching stocks or reading SEC filings like nerds like us do, um, or not. You know, you could lose interest in it or never get interest in it. So yeah, it, it could change for a bunch of reasons. So we'll talk through that too. Well, let's let's kick this off um, with there was a tweet um, that somebody else that I follow had shared. Um, from a gentleman named Guy Penn, who, frankly, I do not know. I know nothing about his work. But the tweet was so compelling to me. And it was the mathematically optimal choice 
isn't always the right choice. That's the power of human advice. I believe he works like somewhere in like risk management or um, investment advisory. Um, and I retweeted it out talking about how this was that that really sums up uh, why we wanted to do this podcast. But I'm going to read it again. The mathematically op- optimal choice isn't always the right choice. And I want to add some examples of 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 this from some really smart people. So for example, let's use cash inside of your investing portfolio as an example. Peter Lynch ran the Magellan Fund at Fidelity for two decades and basically lapped the S&P 500 every year uh, on, on an average basis while running that fund. And that's let me tell you, that's really hard to do when running something like a mutual fund because you have inflows of money that you have to figure out how to invest to meet your like your your all the guide the guidelines for the fund and then when investors take money out you have to pick stuff to sell right to to cash yeah. out those it's really hard to do um and he did, uh, Peter Lynch yeah, in this like really tough environment to run a fund has said that he generally like as his own investing style stays fully invested and the numbers back up that that makes the most sense David Gardner, one of the co-founders of The Motley Fool, a legendary investor and stock picker in his own right, has basically said the same thing, that he pretty much stays fully invested, only buys stocks once or twice a year. On the other hand, there's a lot of people that talk about the value of cash as a margin of safety, optionality, none less than Tom Gardner, David Gardner's brother, co-founder of The Motley Fool and the CEO of The Motley Fool, has talked about the value of having cash, maybe 10% or more. So that's exactly it, right? That's the difference between what's optimal and what's best for you. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to how many stocks in your portfolio. Yep, I agree. And, you know, just to continue the cash example, you know, to, and, and also to compare you and I to Tom and David Gardner, well, obviously. Um, we, obviously, we have similarly opposite cash strategies just between the two of us, right? You, you're one, you're someone who does. Yeah. 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 You're more time. You do keep a lot of cash. Whereas I, I mostly stay fully invested. Um, you know, I, to me, I think, I think of it as if, if there was a really compelling reason to put more money into my investment portfolio than I do normally, I would just pull that from my savings account. But I, I don't routinely keep cash in my brokerage account you know, or whatever for when the market falls. And I know you have a whole strategy around that. And again, people can go back and listen to, um, on our earlier, uh, series called how we invest. So let's kind of set some frameworks. I think there's one thing that you and I generally agree on. I think this is particularly true for newer investors, maybe people that don't have as much time to dedicate to actually doing the dedicated intensive research to picking stocks. Maybe they outsource it, and they have a membership to Stock Advisor or Seven Investing, one of those services out there where they're analysts, so that's their job is to do the research and then they make recommendations. So you're taking these pre-vetted ideas and then buying them. I think generally having, you know, 25, 20, 25 plus stocks is, is probably a really good idea for anyone who's picking, picking their own stocks because it's really hard, (laughs) 
right? And if you look at like the averages, like this is some of the things, and we talked about this last week in the in the in the mailbag. We had uh, I think it was Chris, one of our um, longtime listeners, who asked a question about the percentage of stocks that outperform, and I answered it a different way, talking about the percentage of gains that the average investor is likely to get where they're going to come from. And it's like 20% of your stocks is going to generate 80% of your returns. You have to be really good to run a concentrated portfolio because you only get a very limited number of swings, right? And yeah. if you make bad decisions, the downside risk is because you, you're more exposed to that individual company risk if you only own 10 stocks, right? It's an outsized downside risk. If you own 25 stocks, then you have a little bit more margin of safety as I can't remember if it was Munger or Buffett. I think it was Munger who said diversification is a hedge against um, ignorance, right? Right. And I think most like retail, regular down the street investors who have a full-time job and they invest on the side, that's a real thing you're going to have to f face on a regular basis. Yeah. And it, you know, one of the ways we've defined risk in the past, again, you can go back and listen to, we did a whole episode on risk, um, but what was, you know, risk is catastrophic loss, right? Or, or is so permanent loss of capital, permanent loss of capital. So yeah. and the beauty about investing in the stock market is if you invest in the S and P 500 at the worst possible time at the high before a crash and hold for long enough, your risk of permanent loss is zero investing in the market, right? The short-term risk is there in the volatility, but the long-term right. risk is zero. It's when you concentrate and have on intense individual company risk, that's the thing, right? That's when you're risking on with these concentrated portfolios. Yeah. And it can, so the 25 stock minimum sort of, you know, floor to your portfolio, so to speak, could, could be the thing that prevents that catastrophic loss across your portfolio. You know, it's, if one of your 25 goes to zero, but the other 24 don't, that's sort of, that, that's good. Right. The other, but the other side you of it too You cap your loss at 4% versus 10%. Right. But it also can spook you. Even if it's not catastrophic loss, I've told this story before, but I have a family member who who only invested in a handful of individual stocks back in the 90s. Now, thankfully, this person had a ton of money in index funds and mutual funds through through their 401k, but they dabbled in individual stocks. And I want to actually talk about that aspect of this later on too. Bought Cisco at the very peak, and I don't think it's ever come back to that level. And it spooked this friend of mine. Um, out of investing for a really long time because then it, then it became oh it's rigged I can't win what was I thinking um, whereas if that person had had twenty five stocks and Cisco you know crashes after they buy it now they can see success in some other places so yeah I, I think we're on the same page there if you're new if you're newer if you're learning if you're not going to spend a lot of time that's a good sort of minimum to to kick off your investing journey with. This is stunning. You brought that up. And, and I, I looked at our Y charts, something we have access to through our um, hat tip here to the Motley Fool and Y charts. Cisco says, and this is total returns. This is factoring in the dividend that it started paying along the way, um, probably 10 years ago. It's still like 23% down from the 2000 high. That's, I'm laughing, but I'm so sad for anybody. Yeah, I who, mean, you know. And I, I had a conversation with with uh, with this person when I sort of first got into buying individual stocks, and I was learning, and, and I learned I knew enough at that point to know that the reason that that was their reaction was because they only owned a handful of companies, and I tried to explain like 
but look at all these other companies that, that, that didn't happen to. So, yeah, but I, you know, it can spook you, and it can, at, in, in the best case scenario, it can spook you. Worst case scenario, it can wipe out your portfolio. So you, you really do need to be diversified when you're starting out. Let's let's make the case for a concentrated portfolio, Jeff. We we had Brian Withers on um, a few episodes back. Somebody that was able to walk away from a six-figure corporate job um, in their early fifties and has transitioned to a very concentrated portfolio from going from 50 plus stocks down to this concentrated portfolio and seems very comfortable with that. Even, even though we've gone through kind of the tech crash 2.0 here over the past year and a half. And I'm just curious as to like your thoughts about like what's the what's the for you what's the bull case what's the what's the reason why you could see yourself eventually having a concentrated portfolio and let's say concentrated meaning twenty stocks or less. So I can think of it two ways. I can think of it how I would the reason I might end up there, and then I could talk about how I could see you know the average person ending up there. So for me personally, it's two things. One is that. The more I learn and the more I feel comfortable making a decision about a company because I've researched it for several quarters, several years even, and I know everything about the business and I can sort of, I can see ahead to like where I would think the business should be going and I can maybe see some concerns. Like the more I learn and the more I know, the more I feel like, well, why don't I put that into action and, you know, go a little, you know, risk on, so to speak, and, and put a little more money into that company and then the flip side of that too is like, or the, the the part that's connected to that is, if I'm right, if I'm good at this, if I do a good job, and I see a, a company I invest in do really well over the long term, I know inevitably I'm going to say, oh, I wish I put more in, right? So there's that right. natural, there's yeah. that natural tendency to be like, oh, cool, this is up 300 percent over the past five years. I wish I had put double the money into that. Now I, that's hindsight, 2020, and all that, but. I could see myself because of the time I do put in wanting to be more concentrated just because I feel like my confidence level is higher. I know the companies. For me too, it's more likely to happen because I still even now have the vast majority of my of my part of our combined investing portfolio, my wife and I, in index funds and all of my wife's is in index funds. So you know, if I look at our entire investment portfolio – it, it's still probably less than ten percent is in individual stocks, right? Um, so, I I sometimes say to myself, I should I should I should have a concentrated stock portfolio of maybe even ten stocks because combined it's still less than ten percent of my overall portfolio. Now I just can't get myself there yet because that's still right. <laughs> money I don't want to see lose, lost if I'm wrong. Um, but I think you know for me that's where I could get to. It's a combination of like. I spend time on this. I want to put the research in. I want to put the time in. I know the businesses, so I may as well, you know, invest like that. Mm-hmm. And it's also that I do have this sort of buffer of a lot of money in index funds. So even if I'm really bad at it or screw it up, I should be okay. So that's kind of how I think about it from my own personal standpoint. Yeah, I think, and and you kind of hit on some of it a little bit, but um, and I did too. Like you know, that there is less margin of safety if you're wrong, but if you're right man, you can be really, really right. You know, you talked about that hindsight of, 
like Merc- I can use Mercado Libre as an example, right? This is one that my f- my first two or three buys, and I mean they were a few hundred bucks back back then. You know, it was smallest amount of money. I, it was with the one brokerage that did um, uh, fractional investing back then, and they only did it on Tuesdays, right? And you had to set it up like a week in advance for the for the act purchase to actually happen, um, and. But I was lucky that Mercado Libre was like one of the seven or eight stocks that I did this with because it's like a 20 bagger. These little tiny amounts of money turned into meaningful amounts of money. And instead of just feeling like I missed it, I've bought a lot more of that company over the past three or four years. Some of those shares I paid more than they're worth today. But, but I still, again, I believe I have very, very high conviction. Right. So it's the kind of thing where I think for most people that run those concentrated portfolios, there's three things they know really, really well. They know the companies that they're investing in very well. They know the industries and competitors of those companies really, really well. And they know themselves really, really well. Right. So they know that they can deal with. All of the stuff, I mean, how many people out there have 2% of their portfolio invested in Upstart and it fell by 80% and they've absolutely lost their minds over, you know, 1% of their money, right? Which is essentially, you know, so right. yeah. it's, it's when, when you're able to have that kind of portfolio and you have the discipline to do it, you can do it because you know yourself as an investor well enough to be able to do it and you're willing to leverage your risks up. But also, you're probably not buying a bunch of upstart. You know, you're not buying a bunch of a company that still has to prove itself. You're not buying a lemonade that's burning through money and hasn't proved that it can actually be an insurance company. And it's, guess what? It's an insurance company. You invest in companies that generate positive cash flows, have strong balance sheets, really clear, durable margins of, 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 of safety and competitive advantages. And you just see a wonderful opportunity to, to generate returns. So you build a portfolio in a smart way when you're taking on that concentration. Right. Or, yeah, I think that's If you don't, you're the, an idiot. But, you know. Well, I think that's the smartest way to build a concentrated portfolio. But, I, you know, I do think some of this has to do with, I don't want to call it risk tolerance, but some people are more comfortable taking calculated risks than others. Yeah. Like, so I'll use myself as an example numbers wise and this goes to the way we started the podcast right what's what's mathematically ideal is not necessarily ideal numbers wise i could sell my entire portfolio and buy 10 stocks and just go and see what happens and i and i know that if that is is a disaster of a decision i will overall be okay right mm-hmm. but i don't have the the gambler's mentality for lack of a better way of putting it, or I don't have the, you know, calculated risk tolerance to make that big of a bet on myself right now. <laughs> you know, like yeah. who knows how I feel a decade from now, but I know people who, who would do that, you know, and if it's a calculated smart risk, like, yeah, maybe your concentrated portfolio of 12 companies, eight of them are like the, the, the slow and steady dividend growers, but you, you take a wild swing on three or four and you're right. Right. With a, with Where a you have 90% of, money. of your portfolio in eight, and then you have four more that you've got just a few percentage here and there in, right? Where right. you're still taking on that risk in a more thoughtful way. 
That's, right, that's exactly. a good way to put it. Jeff, I think I finally figured out how, like, I'm, I'm really risk tolerant, um, as we've talked about. You know, I have tons of speculative bets that I've, that I've made, even though I'm about to rationalize it, right? And that's, we're going to have a lot of fun doing that here on the podcast. I think it's because I don't think any of it's real. Like, <laughs> I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I just, yeah. I, yeah. I don't think of the assets inside my portfolio as being a real thing. It's, it's, it's a future thing. It's a future construct, right? Well, so, and that, that, that goes back to what we've talked about in the past, which is one of the ways you sleep well at night, one of the ways you can tolerate market volatility is to know that the money you're investing with is money you truly can live without right now. Jeff, there is no spoon. <laughs> there is no spoon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't want to lose that money. Like if you really no. think about it, you know, that's bad. Mm-hmm. It's bad to lose that money, but you're you're not missing it as it comes out of your paycheck or as you put it into your account because you've built your financial situation around the fact that you can spare that money for now. Right. So that it doesn't it does kind of feel like it's not real. Like I I will agonize over you know, a tenth of of a purchase that I make in real life versus the money I oh, invest I'm that I lost. In yeah, today. I'm the worst. I'll spend two hours researching a thirty five dollar item, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then you'll go buy a hundred shares of something and not think twice about it. Yeah, and I understand. not think twice about it. It's yeah, it's kind of bonkers. It is. Let's 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 make the case for a large. Before we do that, so let's just to kind of sum up here, right? So, what's what's like your two or three bullets on like the pros and cons of the concentrated portfolio. Well, to me, if I was going to sum it up, it goes back to the Munger quote you you gave earlier where Diversica- diversification. diversification is a hedge on ignorance. Right. So to 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 do a Munger like thing and invert Munger's quote, you know, concentration is a bet on intel or you know, on uh information or research, right? So if if diversification is wisdom. A, yeah, on wisdom, thank you. That's the better word. So basically you know, you're betting on your ability to know what you're doing, the more concentrated your portfolio is. And if you're comfortable making that bet, you know, you're probably going to be better off, right? You know, I think the the data does show that just making a decision and putting your money down today, if you're, you know, is a, is a, gives you better returns than dollar cost averaging, which is what I do, but you have to be right. right. That's the challenge. Yeah. So let's let's do this. Let's, let's make the case for the for the large diversified portfolio, which is easier for you and I because we tend to lean that way. Um, I'm going to start off with the bull case and just refer to a book called The Davis Dynasty. I want to encourage people to read that talks about starting with Shelby Davis back, I guess, around the Depression. I can't remember exactly when it started, but there's the third generation of the Shelbys, I believe, that are managing their wealth now, and. I don't remember, again, the exact number from the book, but it seems like when Shelby Davis's son was kind of, had taken over either after his father's death or when his father was really no longer able to, to manage the, the, the investments, Shelby Davis owned hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stocks and apparently was known for calling his broker when he had done some research into a company, like and he would kind of start off with an industry and um, when he would identify kind of these, these opportunities, he would just buy, you know, would just buy baskets. And 
there'd be some losers, but then there would be some really, really big winners. And and by the time he was no longer able to to manage this portfolio, I do think it was maybe after his death, uh, maybe eight, for some reason, 800 is the number that, that sticks in mind. That might not be right because his portfolio was worth maybe $800 million and started with 50 grand like 30 years before. But the point is, is that you have an example of somebody that created enormous wealth from a much, much smaller starting point. Again, Peter Lynch, another example, Jeff, running the Magellan Fund, bought and owned hundreds of stocks. And of course, he had a team of analysts helping him, you know, vet these companies um, and do the and do the research. Um, but again, this is somebody that basically doubled the market's returns for, two, for every year for two decades. Um, so there you go. There's there, there's your evidence, right? It also, yeah. And I think, you know, I started with a portfolio around the size that you had at the time. So I, I, at one point I probably had close to 120 stocks too, maybe not quite that many, but it was over a hundred for sure. And that was a combination of two things. It, one was that it, I was brand new and I was a subscriber to stock advisor. So I had at Motley Fool. So I had like access to all of their history of picks. So I just had this like plethora of ideas. Well, and the and timing too, right? This was this was early mid twenty twenty. So it was early twenty twenty. Yeah, a great. Um, uh, this was a hell of a time to pick a hundred stocks and buy them. Right. Everything was this exciting shiny object that seemed to only go up. Yeah. Um, but I did, you know. And then I was, of course, I was learning and you know talking to people and reading what other people do. And you know, I would find other people like you who had really big portfolios, and and I'd ask why, and I'd hear the reasons, and it resonated with me in the sense that when you own it and it's in your portfolio, and if if you check it frequently or look at a spreadsheet a lot, it's just kind of always on your mind, and you notice things like oh. You know, this has gone up over the past couple months, or or oh, it really crashed after earnings. But and I, that might not be on your radar if you don't own it, because there's thousands of companies out there. So, yeah, I, I think that that's another reason to go that route. You it, they, they stay on your radar a little bit, a little bit more, and then you can sort of see, oh, this has done really well over the past X amount of months or years. Let me go look at why, right? Let me read and figure out like what's going on. Oh, they've really had a lot of customers come to their platform or whatever the reason is. Or conversely, oh man, this one is just, you know, tanked over the past half a year. Why? And you go look and you find out that they have a ton of debt and they don't really have the the cash to cover it, right? So it can be a screening mechanism to some degree to help you make buy decisions, make sell decisions. Um so I, I think those are you know every between what you said and and what I added here like I there's a good and I think when you're newer that's a good way to go right because you, you're still trying to figure so many things out and you, you want to kind of look at everything and really think um, you know we'll talk about how things change over time but you know the, the biggest reason I have found myself concentrating down to the sixty something I have now is more about my obsession with understanding all of the companies and following them really closely and that's just hard to do when there's so many. You, you, when we were planning for the show, you, you brought up something that I thought was great. And I think it would be a fun thought exercise to go through right now. And I think we actually do kind of do a little bit of a version of that. But you asked me, said, what if, what if you just had your hundredth stocks or whatever the number is and just blindly added to the winners? Yeah, I do. I do wonder about that. I thought about it more since I said it. I think you'd have to put some caveats in, like you'd have to, 
you'd have to make sure that the hundred you have are all good, solid companies, right? You don't have anything in there that's a fraud or, you yeah. know, that's super and, duper and, duper speculative. And you have and to factor we, in like cyclical businesses and things. Right, right, right. And you have and you have to think too about like, are we in a huge bubble? Like, not oh, the market's a little overvalued, but I'm talking like when 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 you're adding or buying the quote unquote winners in your portfolio at 50, 60 times sales, right? Maybe that's maybe that's would, a. Would you be upset so, if I accused you of a little bit of hindsight bias right here? Right? Here. No, I absolutely have hindsight <laughs> bias because I did a ton of that. I'm not yeah. absolving myself from that at all. Right. But I think again, with a long enough time horizon, if you just kind of add it to your winners, you'd probably be okay. This is not investment advice. This is just a thought exercise. Yep. Um, but it, you know, it, it is something I think I thought it's an about. interesting framework though, because if you think about the idea of adding to your winners, I think history would support that. But I would also say, conversely, that thinking about winners beyond just the companies that the stocks went up in the near term. Yes. Right? Yes. The business is the one. Yeah. Because the downside of what I what I was just going to say this too, the downside of blindly adding to the winners if you're thinking of winner as it's gone up is you could ignore stock x that is doing great but is just for whatever reason unfairly punished by the market like so i'll give you an example um there were times over the past half a year full year that there's some that companies in my portfolio that are now sort of at have risen to the top in terms of returns that were near the bottom and i added to them because i knew they were strong good businesses and they were cheap, so I bought more. And now I'm sort of starting to see the benefit of that as things have started to recover. If I was blindly just picking the ones that have that had risen to the top based on gains, like if I sort my brokerage by total return, right. I would have missed completely the opportunity to to add to some of them. And that was actually something you said to me once when I was talking through this with you, like because my strategy for my weekly investing is roughly based around adding to winners mm-hmm. with a little bit more information or a lot more information than just what we're talking about now. And you actually did remind me like, yeah, but don't forget that's going to help that you're going to end up ignoring, you know, the, the, the trade desk or whatever, that is a great company that's just been beat down because of the market's down because it's, you know, so that kind of made me think differently about it, but Here's I don't a, know. I still kind of, go, go ahead. ahead. No answer. I was just going to, uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, I still think over the long, a long enough time horizon, it probably, you know, isn't the worst strategy in the world, but directionally, I agree hundred percent. I mean, I think a good example, um, I, like a real world example of this and it's sure it's cherry picking, but it's cherry picking to prove the point about the great business. And that's, I was, I did some research into Netflix here recently. Um, Ben Thompson of Stratechery, and I encourage you to check it out if you're interested in technology Um, for investing reasons or otherwise, check out Ben Thompson's Stratechery, maybe even give him some money. It's, I subscribe to his, his newsletter. It's, it's wonderful, but he wrote up this great history of Netflix. Um, Just kind of to remind everybody that it hasn't just been this like disruptive winner from the beginning, that there were some real this isn't the first time the company's had struggles and challenges and like real imminent threats. But in doing some additional research um, for one of my colleagues, I just ran a stock chart and took a look at it. And like, I couldn't literally count every single time that it happened. But since it went public about 20 years ago, 
the stock has fallen at least 30% from its most recent prior all-time high at least 23 times. So the average is more than once a year, you could buy Netflix for a 30% discount to its prior high. And obviously it hasn't recovered this most from the most recent high, but every other time in the company's history, it um, significantly recovered. So to Jeff's point, if you only ever bought Netflix when the stock was going up, you wouldn't have bought Netflix at the best times. You probably still would have crushed the market over time, but you never right. would have bought it a single time at the best time to buy it. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I like the way you said it. Directionally, it's probably not the worst the worst thing in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's pivot a little bit to talking about how things might change over time in your investing strategy. And I'm not going to go I'm not going to say too much because I've sort of already hit on this a couple times. Um, you know, I've mentioned that I I've started to concentrate over time and I could see a scenario where I continue to do that. Um, but I you know, we and we referenced um Brian Withers, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, he went from a huge portfolio the size of yours down to what he says, 17, 18 now, which is a, a pretty drastic shift. Yeah. And now he's sort of pivoting again, not in the number of stocks, but in the types, right? Yeah. Away from high growth and more towards dividends as he approaches, you know, his his uh retirement his age. Dotage. Yeah. You have to be sure and tell Brian I said dotage. Yeah, I will. So so what are your thoughts about it? Like I I'm curious because I, I I've only known you a couple years now, maybe three 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 ish years we we connected, mm -hmm. and you've always had this massive portfolio. So did you ever have significantly less or more, or, or have you shifted, or can you see yourself kind of changing over time? Honestly, one of the reasons I like talking about this is to help people avoid kind of the mistake that I made for a long time, and that's that I would set these arbitrary numbers in my head of the number of stocks that I should own. And my portfolio would balloon, and then I would say, no, 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 this i got to go back to this many. And then I would arbitrarily go through my portfolio and, 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 and sell off stocks because, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to sell this midstream company and keep the other one because I only need to own one, right? I mean, it was literally arbitrary stuff, and it wasn't I, – I, was, I wasn't making decisions that were truly optimal for me. I was making them they were optimal for what other people were saying was optimal, right? And it probably cost me returns. I know it certainly cost me tax money. I would sell winners and in a taxable account, <laughs> realize tax um, losses or ta tax gains, so I'd have to pay tax on it, right? Um, trading fees over the years, I don't know, probably a couple thousand dollars in trading fees doing this back when that was a thing. Um, dating myself a little bit here, I know. But the the point is is I was too busy trying to build a portfolio ba based on expectations of what I was told was the best way to do it and not really taking the time to invest in understanding like the approach that would work best for me. And probably six or seven years ago, I came to the realization. I just, if I'm interested in a stock, after I've done a, the, the, what I think is the minimum amount of research that I need to do, and identify whether is it on the speculative end where maybe I take a really small position or it's like, okay, this is one that I like a lot and I'm going to buy more. I just need to buy it. Like I, I literally just need to take some of this cash that I keep in reserve and buy. Because what I would do, Jeff, 
I also didn't keep a lot of spare cash. I would sell one thing just literally just to raise the money to buy something else. Like I would basically, I would figure out a way to convince myself that I needed to sell some of this other company to raise cash to buy. Like I just, I had a terrible approach and it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. Right. So I've learned more about myself and it's helped me kind of embrace who I am as an investor and thinking about risk and thinking about like the skin in the game aspect of like, if I buy a small position, I pay better, more attention. Um, and it helps me make sure not lose that stock along my journey that, you know, and then, okay, I just, I missed it. It's up 300% and I was really interested in it 300% ago. You know what I mean? So like that, and, and I've embraced the reality that at some point in my life, I may not have the same amount of time to do the amount of research that I do now. I may not have the interest to do the amount of research that I do right now. And I'm fully prepared to make changes to the way that I manage my portfolio when that time, when that time comes. Brian's a great example of this. He talked about that, how he did have that large portfolio, lots of stocks. But now he has more time. Interestingly enough, he has more time to dedicate to research but he understands his goals and himself as an investor better and has learned that concentration makes more sense for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, that, and just <clears throat> to kind of end that part of the conversation, I think that just brings it back to what we've talked about so many times with so many things. Like it, it really has to be the thing that works for you. And that thing that works for you is going to change over time, right? Cause your circumstances are going to change. Your experience is going to change. Um, so the last thing I want to ask because I think this is something you and I might disagree on a little bit, um, and then we can hit the uh, fake or real ad break and and do our second sec, uh, section of the podcast after well, that. It's a real ad break. It's just questionable whether or not there's going to be an advertisement there. That's true. It is an ad break. Yes. There just may not be an advertisement. Um, what's your thought about diversifying your portfolio in terms of types of stocks, meaning like the sectors you're in and things like that? So I think it's good to have some diverse some diversification in there now what i i don't mean you should make sure you have one industrial stock and make sure you have one banking stock and make sure you have one consumer discretionary stock i don't mean that yeah but i do mean if you have let's say 100 stocks i don't think 97 of them should be you know in the technology sector or in the any one sector simply because sometimes you do see groups of stocks move in sympathy when there's a, you know, a, a, a downturn in the market. Um, and I, and this is something I lived through over the past couple of years because I, I sort of have two sections of my portfolio. One is sort of what I think of as like my core investing portfolio. And one is like the stocks whose goal it is to simply beat my mortgage rate. We've talked about this before. Right. Um, I, I have a bunch of stocks I put money into, instead of adding to my mortgage, like an extra payment, thinking that as long as I can keep that section of my portfolio ahead of my interest rate for my mortgage, I'm sort of ahead of the game. Right. And I've watched the success of those two parts of my portfolio completely invert, right? In, in 2020, 2021, the core low part risk, was- Low multiple dividend growth has done a hell of a lot better. Right. 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 So that I've lived the the- the positive side of that diversification diversification because over 2022 as like my core portfolio so to speak has gotten crushed all my dividend paying mortgage beating stocks have done all right and and in some cases beat the market over the past 
you know, bear market. So I, I want to know your thoughts on that too. Yeah, I, I think largely so like sector diversification is bullshit. <laughs> I mean, I don't, there's no other way that I can describe it. I really don't believe in it at all. Largely to your point, I think owning an oil stock because you think you need an oil stock no, it doesn't. It doesn't serve you. What is your What is your actual goal, right? If your goal is to generate market outperformance over the next thirty years before you retire, does that oil stock you bought actually feed feed that goal or not? Or did you buy it because you think you need an oil stock, right? So, stay laser focused on what you're actually trying to accomplish. If one of your goals is to to have like the least amount of volatility. Right. I mean, that can that can be a reasonable way for people to think about managing their stock portfolio, because if you're the kind of person that seeing your portfolio up and down a tremendous amount in short periods of time makes it really hard to stay invested. OK, you need to own more Berkshire Hathaways and um, those kind of companies. Right. I get it. That, that, that totally makes sense. Um, but again, I think it's more about managing yourself than it is about managing like that diversification broadly. Because again, I believe this deeply in my soul, and I think the evidence backs it up. The reality is, if you're if you're if you own enough stocks, twenty five or more, it's very unlikely that you're going to have so much extreme con- concentration to the same risk factors and risk factors that one large thing that happens related to that industry is going to upend your entire portfolio. I don't think it's ever happened. I mean, I'd, yeah, if you only own railroad stocks, like, I mean, or only own steel makers, that's one thing, but you're talking like four or five or six companies. So I think like tech, for example, tech is such a diverse, broad industry. Yeah, everything um, is a tech stock, really. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and if, if, if it's not a tech stock, the, there's a good chance that that tech company, maybe they're specialized and they just sell to banks, right? So, um, you might have a tech stock that just sells to banks and then you have banks. Guess what? That tech stock's exposed to the same risk as the banking sector. So I think, I think sometimes we over, like we over hedge on the idea of risk and, and we remove the word risk and everything that the financial services industry puts in front of you and replace it with the word volatility when you're talking about stocks. And that's what they're talking about when they say risk, right? And you need to think about your ability to deal with volatility just in helping you kind of manage it and then risk how much risk are you willing to take on? Then that's going to probably affect how many stocks you think you, you, you need to own more than anything, Jeff. Yeah, no, I agree. So yeah, I think we're maybe, we're, maybe we're more on the same page with this than I thought. I like the way, I like the way you phrased it. Is it serving your goal? You know, it's sort of yeah. like, um, you know, invest with the end goal in mind. Right. Right. Um, and, and don't diversify just for the sake of diversification, diversify smartly and, 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 mitigate any risk concentration, I think is a good way to think of it. Yeah. I mean, I think your average investor that really knows business and has kind of cut their teeth good enough and has some wounds that they've gone through too, would probably do better picking their 16 highest conviction stocks than their favorite stock in 16 sectors. Is it 16? Yeah. However many, 12, how many six sectors it is, yeah. right? I know what you mean. That, yeah. That's a good point. Okay. Am I making the coffee this time, Jeff? Yeah, I think I, I made it last week, so it's your turn. It wasn't very good. No. Yeah. It wasn't. I'll use my French press. <laughs> Thanks. Don't go anywhere, people. We'll be right back. 
everybody. Hey, Jeff, how was that coffee? Much better than mine. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I knew that. I knew that. All right. So for our, our second segment here, a couple of weeks ago, you posted a video when it was, uh, it was back when the, on the same day we found out about uh, CEO changes at Netflix and also Texas Instruments. And if, if I remember correctly, the gist of your video was that everyone's going to talk about the Netflix CEO change, but um, the Texas Instrument one was the one that was more interesting to you. And I know some time has passed since then, and by the time this airs, it'll be even more time. So who knows if there's been any other leadership changes since then. But it's sort of an evergreen topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is just basically, you know, how do you think about leadership changes when you see a new CEO, when you see a new, maybe even a COO or CFO, right? How much does that factor into your decision-making process or your thesis about a company? Does it depend? Does it, is it something you always care about? Is it something you never care about? Like what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, the unsatisfying answer is it depends, Jeff. But it, but it really does, right? Because you have different companies in different stages of their existence and successful track records of leadership changes in the businesses continue to move forward. A great example is Trex, a company we've talked about a lot. One of the reasons I love Trex is because when Ron Kaplan took over the company, kind of in the middle of the financial crisis, he took over a business that I don't think he fully realized was almost insolvent brought some of his lieutenants from his prior companies with him, made some phone calls, used his connections to, to get enough liquidity to save the business, and then completely rebuilt the business internally and its corporate culture and the cor- culture on the board from the, from, to the point now where there have been, I think, four CEOs over the past maybe 10 or 12 years. And the business has continued to do exactly the same things it was really good at, generate wonderful returns, great margin profile, and build a stronger competitive advantage, right? So some some companies, you know, I've talked about culture as being what management does, not what they say, right? And so we have a clear example like with Attracts where I'm just not, I'm not worried about it, about their ability to, to execute. Now you look at Texas Instruments and Netflix both, and Netflix, Reed Hastings, co-founder of the business, right? Um, became its second CEO, took over as CEO very early from um, the original co-founder of the business. And he's led it through a disruption phase of Blockbuster, right? Which honestly, the business was, Blockbuster was a couple of months away from actually dominating. Um, and there's, you know, so there, there's an alternative reality that's not that different from our own where, where Blockbuster wins and Netflix falls to the wayside. But he had the, you know, he had the guts to lead this business through that. And then less than 10 years later to look around and say, oh man, we got a streaming's coming. We have to be the leader here or somebody's going to eat our lunch. Led through that pivot, right? Kind of did some harm to the business doing it too soon. The whole Quickster thing, right? Um, and now you have this, really important person who's stepping away, right? Who's stepping away from day-to-day management of the business. But at the same time, um, uh, Ted Sarandos has been in, in, in charge of, um, their, um, 
content since tw- 2000, 2001, right? He's been doing this for 20 years. He's been co-CEO since 2020. So that transition seems really easy. His name's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember. But the co-CEO that's basically, that's filling Reed Hastings' seat has been there since like 2008 and has been their head of product. So product meaning like the app right. and the technology. So you basically, you have the people that were already making the decisions and Hastings is going to be the chairman, right? So it doesn't feel it's like- not, It's not that big of a change when you really think about it. Doesn't it doesn't seem like it, right? So that's the key. Uh, and then you look at a company like uh, Texas Instruments and you have a, not, again, not a fact, Texas Instruments is a 100-year-old company. And then you have you know Rich Templeton uh, who- the business that, that Texas Instruments is basically the business that he built starting in about 2000 and then became CEO in 2004. Here's the thing. He tried to s- step away in 2018 and his replacement was, ab- was about to get fired, right? And resigned from the company um, within months, right? So maybe I'm being gun shy, but I think the point is, is that when you have kind of a key man with a company that it's clear they've been really, really important to what a company's done, I think you have to pay a little bit more attention when when there's leadership changes. But Jeff, there's the 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 Lynch quote, right? The 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 any idiot proxy, I think is the way that I think about it is, you know, by a company any idiot can run because eventually any idiot will run it. And that gets back to the culture of what does management do and it really starts from the board, right? Because they set that leadership. They're the one that holds the CEO accountable. And they're the ones that should put the person in place. I mean, look at Disney, right? Disney is, you know, is maybe Disney's not an idiot, idiot any idiot company. Yeah, that's an interesting one because it's really hard to know. I mean, look, Bob Chapek had some self-inflicted wounds. You know, how he handled some of the controversy in Florida probably wasn't the best from a public, at least from a public relations standpoint. You can take whatever stance on it that you want. Right. Um, no, so I, that's a good example, but, but, but even with that stock down by half, Netflix stock fell like 80% back when the whole Quickster thing happened, right? Yeah. Even great leaders do stupid things and make mistakes and stocks fall. I've always had a contrarian view on the value of leadership and I, I must be not right about it because, you know, there are key man or key person clauses in contracts for a reason, right? There, you can you can actually build legal agreements around what happens if this person leaves a company. Um, so clearly, the industries and the markets writ large think that there's importance in some leaders. Um, so I, but I've heard people say like, "Oh, what do you you know what would make you sell this company?" And the response is, "Oh, if the CEO leaves," and I. That's where I sort of draw my red line, which is I, like I don't know that that's an, yeah I don't know that that's an immediate reason. To, no, I do know this. I don't think that's an immediate reason to sell a company. Right. I do think it's a reason to pay really close attention, and right. That's if, where if George be. if George Kurtz if if there was a press release tonight that George Kurtz was resigning as CEO of CrowdStrike, or Eric Yuan was leaving Zoom, right? Like effective immediately or at the end of the week, Tim Cook, Tim Cook leaves Apple. That'd be another one. Yeah, right. It's like it's not that the CEO left; it's the circumstances around which it would happen. Right. That's the. Yeah. I agree with you there. I think you're 100 percent right. Yeah. So, because the reality is, like, 
you know, and a lot of people also put a lot of weight in, oh, this person's been with the company for a long time. And I think that's good. And that's an important thing too. But I don't know if you're good at your job and you care about the company you're going to, like, I don't see why any of the people you just mentioned couldn't leave and an outsider couldn't come in and do a good job. Now I'd want to watch and ensure that that happens. I wouldn't blindly just believe that any person, you know, external can come in and do as good of a job. But, um, I, I've always sort of taken the tact of like, it's interesting when there's big leadership changes and I want to watch how they do. Like I'm watching the Disney one because yeah. I'm, I'm very curious if the Bob Chapek era and it, this, I mean, look, he, his time as CEO coincided with a pandemic that shut down basically their whole business other than their streaming. Like, I don't know that Bob Iger would have had a much better return either. Um, right. But on the flip side, his track record for the 15 years he was CEO prior to leaving in 2000 was pretty damn good. He made some pretty smart decisions, acquiring Marvel, acquiring the Star Wars franchises, uh, starting Disney Plus, right? So He also bought 20th Century Fox, which I think everybody agrees was like a massive not the greatest deal. Yeah. Right. I'm going to yeah. posit this. I'm going to posit this. I think this is, and this maybe this is kind of close to where we wrap it up. Um, legendary CEO, one of the biggest market beating companies during his time, Jack Welch, GE, GE, GE was a wonderful investment until he left. And then within a few years after him leaving, like the wheels completely came off and the evidence is abundantly clear that a lot of it was because this business that was built was full of risk and over leveraged and has been one of the worst companies to own over the past the past two decades right of the large companies that were the most valuable companies in 2000 and i think that to a certain extent again i'm cherry picking but i think to a certain extent that kind of supports it that sometimes we you know we idolize the 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 super ceo and we put them up on a pedestal and a lot of times it's not how good they were when they were there. It's how good was the business after they were gone that proves their worth. Right. Because his whole, his whole MO was whatever, it doesn't matter about the future of this business. It matters that I hit my numbers this quarter and then I yep. hit my numbers the next quarter and then I hit my numbers the next quarter. And if you're always planning for the next three months, you're not planning for the next 30 years. And, and that was evident as soon as he walked out the door. Um, so yeah, I, it's interesting. It, I think, just to sort of wrap it up, it sounds like I think maybe we're in agreement that at at the least a, a leadership change, you know, the ones at Netflix and Texas Instruments, and I'm sure we're going to see more over the course of this year because there happens every year. It's worth watching. It's worth keeping an eye on. And I think it's worth, to your point earlier, really thinking about the culture that the CEO who's leaving has built. And if they've done that part correctly, um, you know, there there should be a, a smooth transition, or at least you would hope there would be. Jeff, I wanted to save this to the end. Um, I know it's going to be kind of shocking, but I'm resigning as CEO of the smattering effective immediately. <laughs> you know, you know anybody that wants a job? Um, well, first of all, I want to say it's about time. <laughs> and <laughs> by the way, who named you CEO? Like, aren't we co-CEOs or? Fair, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> fair point. I'm promoting Jeff. Jeff's promoting Jeff. All in favor of All Jeff. Right. I nominate Jeff. Do I have a second? Second. Seconded by Jeff. All in favor? <laughs> Aye.
All right. Motion to adjourn this, this podcast. Let's wrap this up. We did it, Jeff. We did it. All right, friends, as always, we love to give our answers to these hard questions about investing, but you need to find your own answers, including how many stocks should you have in your portfolio? We'll see you next time, Jeff. See you next time.